Hey-ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 45 of our podcast. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time finding us, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order, and we don't want you to miss a thing. We're really excited to be reaching thousands of tutor-minded listeners from all over the world. We've had a great time researching this project and bringing it to you. And if you're enjoying it, support us. Buy some great Tudor Time Machine swag. Go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and you'll see the items we have for sale. So get a Do You Tudor tee or a cozy sweatshirt with our Tudor Time Machine logo on it and support the podcast at the same time. In the last episode, we saw the fallout from the Tudor rumor mill. In this episode, it's back to the trials and tribulations of Constance and Philomena. And after the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 45, Bedford House, in which Constance is accused and Philomena bribes a jailer. There is something amiss, Christina said. There are men shouting down on the strand. Maybe a royal babe has been born to Queen Elizabeth. Doradai joked, and rolled the ball for bowls. It is your turn, Christina. Constance took Christina's place at the window. The view from Bedford House was disturbing. The men were like rats, a grey colliding horde. She stepped back in apprehension. Christina took her turn at the game, and the other ladies were hopping and laughing. A maid appeared, and her Swedish words inspired everyone to pose around the room. Constance knew the routine. Men were about to call. She was satisfied, poised in her window. Rutland, Oxford, and two well-armed servants entered the room. Doradai flew to Oxford's side. You have come to play, my lord? This is no time for Cupid, but for Mars, Oxford said with drama. Rutland fidgeted. It was not his way, thought Constance. He looked only at her. It was not a look of appreciation or relief. It was a strange look. We are here in the cause of justice, boomed Oxford. I love justice and liberty, said Doradai. This is a difficult visit, said Rutland, and terrible. It is not terrible for someone to get what they deserve, Oxford followed. Constance sickened. What was the matter? My lords, why do you speak so? asked Christina. We must escort Mistress Constance Stoner to Cecil House, Oxford said. We will all go, said Doradai. Is there a revel? Moonlight dancing? Oh, my slippers, I am getting, Brigitte trilled. Mistress Constance Stoner must come alone, Oxford insisted. My lord, why do you keep calling her that, Doradai inquired. Rutland extended his hand to Constance, and when she did not move, the large men adjusted their weapons. The ladies snapped their mouths shut and stepped back. I shall come, she heard herself say in a tiny voice. You need not drag me. For mass, she thought. The shouts from outside became loud in her ears. The Catholics had been discovered. They were rounding up everyone. She wished she would faint, but she felt quite alert. Doradai asked, My lords, the princess will ask after her English favourite. What would you have me say? Do not worry yourself, dear lady. It concerns you not, Oxford announced. Yet, sadly, I find myself worried. You would not have the princess angry with me. She will beat me with a brush. 
Constance saw Oxford shift. Dorodai's probing rankled him. He barked, Madam, there is no answer and I give you none. Wynne brought her cloak. Dorodai took it away from the girl and helped Constance put it on. The princess will return. As soon as she does, all will be put right. Again you will come? asked a saddened Brigitta. It was only a lover, mewed Christina. At the front door, Oxford said, I thought one who looked like you, Mistress Stoner, the open eye, the spinning thoughts, arriving at Cecil House now and then so unannounced. Those are the ways of a sneaking papist. May your tongue turn to raw meat for the crows to peck out, Rutland damned Oxford. My Lord Rutland played the gallant for Mary Howard's lust last night too, Oxford continued. And she is your friend, is she not, Mistress Stoner? My Lord Rutland has a penchant for Catholic quim. Rutland lunged and Constance fell back. Rutland's hands were on a cursing Oxford. The guard's hands were on her. Rutland was shaking the other guard off, standing aside Oxford, who was sniggering. Not quick enough. Rutland turned on the guard. Do not hold the lady like that. The man loosened his grip. Why such a milksop as you are was sent to haul this chit is past my judgment, Oxford sneered at Rutland. Constance did not look at Rutland, although she herself wondered why he had come to seize her. Would he stand to watch her weep? She would not weep. As they crossed the lane between the houses, a roiling cluster of men laid forward. Constance could not help asking, My lords, what has happened? Blood in Scotland by the hand of a Catholic Mephistopheles, Oxford said as he passed into the house. Rutland, without a word, disappeared too, leaving the two armed men on either side of Constance. She stood between, very still. What next? Lines floated into her thoughts. In court to serve, decked with fresh array, of sugared meats, feeling the sweet repast, the life in banquets and sundry kinds of play, amid the press of lordly looks to waste, hath with it joined oft-times such bitter taste. Rutland reappeared, dismissing the guards to the corner. He must desire privacy to scold her, continue his diatribe on the illness of her dishonesty. Tedious to be lectured by someone so rich and well-favoured. What are you thinking on, mistress? She was taken aback by his question. Nothing. A Wyatt poem, she muttered. By God, there is not one thing about you that I do not find arresting. This was a new mode for Rutland. His whole expression baffled her. His gaze raw. It spoke vulnerability. Was it a revenge trap? She parried. Are you and I not at war, my lord Rutland? Did you not come to be my jailer? I sue for peace. My tribute to you will be your freedom. The timber of his voice. She knew it. She had heard it before. Not for her. Never for her. Gee, Sue, she would break into a thousand shards of disappointment when he grinned and teased. My lord, what is this thing you say? You absolve me of my trespass? feigning the hand of Thomason, Hot wrath, sudden forgiveness, more of your whim. Mistress, you have seen the crap I wrangle into a faulty character, and still I hear you constant, for an atom of such stuff men love. Why did he say that word, Constance wondered. Sir, you have just arrested me with that ass, Oxford. You are a madman. Have done. He paced away. I have not thought of that person, that person who came between us. Constance asked, 
Who? Her. I have not thought of her, whose name is erased from my mind because there can be only one name, and that is yours. It was too much. Constance slumped down. She hoped for the bench, but found the floor. He crouched beside her. You would not commend me should I declare myself in the usual way. Dear Jem, I shall make everything right. I care not a bit, whatever you have done. Constance murmured, I have attended Mass. I care not a whit. I love you, Constance. Let me pay the fine for you. I long to do you this service. I brought you a sweetmeat. He pulled it out of his pocket and laid it on her palm. Had he run after reporting her in custody to the kitchen to get her something tasty? It was a curious dream. She bit it. Cream inside. I should like something to drink. He gestured to one of the guards. Constance, how I have regretted my temper. When you were sent for, Bacon and Oxford were intended as escorts, but I paid Bacon for his place. You and I have been able plotters. Did I not help you with a trick or two? We have deceived people, and you more oft than I. The tragedy is that we who cover our emotions and bide our time, often we cannot know our own minds. I speak for myself alone when I say that I could not unwind my desire for Thomason from my desire for you. And when it was me, when I was the fool, at your hands, it was the sharpest blade to ever pierce my body. He put his arm around her waist, bringing her against him. Her hand was on his neck, touching the skin. His face was close, his lips a pucker's distance. Yet her eyes swerved to the guard. She ducked, and the kiss misfired, landing on her ruff. Rutland looked bewildered. Indicating the guard, Rutland replied, A few coins will keep him quiet. Rutland was kissing her again. Hundreds of tiny kisses. He rubbed her cheeks and nose and kissed. Constance was spinning, lost. A clatter in the hallway. What sadness. Rutland was drawing away. Fear not, sweetheart. An interview with the authorities, and you shall be free. Constance nodded. Take this gold to pay the fine. He kissed her fingers as they closed around the coins. She followed the guard into an empty chamber. Perhaps her judges had been called away and would not come back. Rutland should have come with her. He could have said more about his love for her. That tingle, la! She could not wait to see him again. How would she pass the time? She would be able to think only of Rutland. She could write a love poem. Indeed, that is what she would do. It could be something about her captive body and soul's freedom. Soul. It made her think of God. It had to be her heart or her longing, her undamaged longing. Or she could go back to an animal. She could be a deer, a heart. Was that witty or foolish? She could be a fish, an angel, a cloud, a storm. She was a storm, a storm that came up suddenly. What must she say to Rutland? She could not wait. Maybe she would try to find him now. Why did she have to go through this first? It was such a tedium and unnerving. How generous Rutland had been to give her gold for her fine. She had no cash, and Aunt Stoner, hot with wrath over her own recusant fines, was penniless. Rutland was her champion. The door at the back of the chamber opened to half a dozen soldiers. They proceeded silently into the room and took up positions. For her? It could not be. Someone of high rank was coming. Sentries put their hands on her shoulders. She knelt. She opened her mouth. Could she simply say, 
I went to the mass, but I have gold. Now a man with insignia, a sheriff of London, here, for her. Heaven and hell. Lord William Cecil was coming in. He sat, ringed fingers, great cloak. She did not allow herself to look at his face, but she imagined a considered expression. Mistress Stoner, he said, his voice like a Caesar, we know of your treason, your visits to the tower. We know of your every move. Mother Mary, undone, caught. Constance struggled to her feet. A blunt sound, her insides throbbed in a jumbled ache. She hit the floor face first. Dust went in her eye. She sneezed. Had one of the guards hit her? She curled around to see, but the men were still, their weapons ready. She pushed herself to kneel, her back ribboning with an ache. You do not call out, lady. Are you not hurt? asked the sheriff. Deed, sir, I am, she cleared her throat. But I, I wish to pay you honour, knowing I have brought your wrath upon myself. I visited the tower. And why did Signor Guzman de Silva send you there? William Cecil demanded. To bring the lady the sacred host, Constance answered, too scared to lie. The sheriff made a retching sound. This girl will burn in hell. Mistress Stoner, what letters did Signor Guzman give you for the Countess of Lennox? Lord William asked. Only a blessing, my lord, I swear it. Constance instinctively opened her hands to show them. She heard shifting and Lord William Cecil's voice. Lie, and we will seize the pittance that is left of your family's land. The Countess of Lennox is forbidden communication. Signor Guzman gave you messages from the Spanish king for her, and she returned the messages through you. You conveyed them. Admit it, mistress. She felt a great desire to piss. Nettles seemed to spring on her skin, and she heard herself pant. I... I bore the host. Only that. I swear it. Could she peek at this man? What did he think? This was a crazed accusation. How could she defend herself? How many letters for Signor Guzman did you bring? He pressed. She shook her head and bent lower. She should not be here. Lord, sir, I gave him no letters. Sir, I swear it. I only left the empty purse for him. Indeed. Lord, sir, under the statue of Pan in the Bedford House garden, I swear it on my life, sir, I only brought the host. I thought, and I perhaps should not have thought so. The host brings spiritual sustenance. The lady was in need. Dust was in her mouth and she gagged. Her head throbbed and when she touched it she felt a lump. She sucked a long breath in. There was something terribly wrong. They had hit her again. Her hammering head disordered her thoughts. Sir, I have no report. I wish to satisfy you, but I swear on all that is sacred. I carried the host. That is all. A servant broke into the room. My lord, a rider from Scotland. Lord William Cecil rose. Great hands were reaching for her. She tried to stand, to back away, but the men on either side gripped her. Sir, I do not deceive. I shall pay my fine. Sir, I did not know. I did not do this thing you think of me. The sheriff did not answer, and his mien, the stiffness of all the faces. They did not care how she pleaded, so she silenced herself. The wagon at the door. The answer to the question in her mind. 
she was going to jail. The Arundel Inn looked as if a battle was waged within its walls. Philomena cursed the mess, the expense, the behaviour. Cuthbert took two bits of a broken chair to a pile, saying, The furniture maker will profit from this night's chaos. Her servants were an industrious lot, Philomena thought. Like ants as they tidied, it was an odious night. Hopefully the men went home to their beds and their wives, but if they went to brawl, at least it was not under her roof. The stairs were long on this night. Her head pounded with an old song. What a grief tis to depart and leave the flower that has my heart, my sweet lady, and a lack for woe. Why should we part so? The strange things shouting brought on. Indeed, it was not from her head at all. It was someone singing. Sir Francis, return to his room and still awake. She must see him. Why should we part so? Woo, woo, woo. So, woe, woe, woe. She rapped on the door. Sir? Mistress, good evening to you. And to you, good sir. Dear lady, you have played the bad hostess tonight. I am loath to hear it. Were your linens not fresh? The fire not lit? Philomena wondered that he had not noticed the near riot in her hall. No, no, you never came to the bath. I waited. I got quite cold. But here you are to warm me again. Philomena dismissed the overture. Good sir, there were some rambunctious fellows in the inn. He reached to touch. Mistress, what a face you have. Too lovely to be always bent on worry. It would ease you to have the company of a man. La, Philomena uttered, not encouraging or damning, only stepping back a bit. She must play this carefully. It would not serve to insult Sir Francis, but he would not be known to her in the carnal way. His carrot-coloured good looks and crinkly smile, his open nature, nothing about him boiled her blood as Blackjack did. Sir Francis moved to put his arm around her waist. It felt heavy, lumpy. She looked up. His mouth came close. How strange his face was. Where were the scars and lines, the dark beard, the scratchy patches, bits of gravel? This face was all custard. Without considering, her fingers kneaded his cheek, as if it were bread dough. Indeed, Sir Francis, I would be eased with the company of a husband. (laughs) Of course, of course, he laughed, taking his arm away. You are a beauty, mistress, and the man you marry will be a fellow of good fortune. Thank you, sir. But there is madness in the city tonight. I worry for your precious things. Let me take them and lock them away. Very well, then. First, this letter. It is of importance. I shall take it. My purse. Certainly. My spurs, my cuffs, my gloves. You have much, sir. Shall I call a servant? Reconsidering his belongings, he began throwing his clothing on the bed checking in his trunk, before announcing, I see nothing else. These things are enough for your care. Philomena took a breath to calm her impatience. Sir, the pomander I saw you wear, that must have worth. It would be wise for me to take that too. Oh, I would give it, but I have it no longer. Philomena stared at him. Sir, I hope you did not lose such a lovely jewel. Lost in the most amusing circumstances, but lost indeed. 
He laughed and began to sing again. My sweet lady and a lack for woe, why should we part so? Why should we part so? Philomena was overcome. Sir, you must retrieve it. Allow me to assist you. If it was stolen, I shall call the constable. Oh, dear lady, how your mind runs on robbery. If you gave it away, sir, I think it is best to retrieve it. Such a valuable thing should not be parted with. Oh, it was given away, and I was happy to part with it for what I gained. Do not concern yourself further. Now, where are my possessions to be safely kept? She wanted to skewer him. Sir, I hope you have not given the pomander to someone unworthy, who might have been happy with a nothing. I lost it at cards. To a lofty person, you are wrong on all counts. Your worry is sweet, but you are overcome with it. Come, beauty, unwrinkle that brow. I will lip you again. He reached for her. A pox on it, Philomena thought as she skidded away. She could not, not even for the pomander. Blackjack was too strong in her mind. She would have to stir around in Sir Francis's empty skull another time, when he was less bent on amour. I must put your things away, sir, she explained, closing the door behind her and running face to face with Blackjack himself. She stopped in her tracks. Oh, Blackjack, how I have thought on you. What a hurly-burly tonight. Philomena saw his hand was on his sword. What has happened? Why do you look so darkly? Will there be war? Stop your putrid mouth. The wind flew as if he had struck her. She straightened. Blackjack, I do not know your mind. I can well see your anger. Black Jack was seething. He had let this girl lie to him. This Eve. You Eve, he shouted. She slunk back. That made him irate. It was she who had brought this on their bond. You said it was nothing, but the stoner is a traitor, and you have protected her and lied to me, Philomena. What ridiculous hyperbole. It was always left to her to bring calm. What has happened to Constance? More concerned for that chit's welfare than his anger, Blackjack felt such rage. Even now you rate her thus, he accused. Philomena remained even. What news? Her pleading expression, it burned him. Nothing could hurt her more than the truth itself. That person, that person you call friend, I saw her fate. Master Rivers taking her to the poultry compter. She has been arrested for treason. Confounded, Philomena's anger drained. Strange words. Could Blackjack tell such an odious lie? You are so suspicious, sir. Every piked head on London Bridge is hers. There could be no cause. How could Philomena stand here, he thought, her arms full of some guest's worthless novelties, and blame him? I am no blind fool, mistress. It was Constance Stoner and no other. Blackjack, Philomena begged. Is it true they have taken her? You charge me unjustly, I swear to you. She and I only searched for something that was once dear to her family. He said nothing. Blackjack, help me go to Constance. This is some mistake. The curse of being a stoner. Always the scapegoat. You would do it for your own fellow. This girl dared compare a woman's friendship to the bond of men-at-arms. What conceit, Blackjack thought. She should never have taken up with that stoner. Women such as this Philomena, who played with loyalty and truth, such a woman would ruin a man. You cajoled me, mistress. You deceived me. Over and over you deceived me. 
I cannot look on you. My men will return to get my things. I leave as you have so oft desired me to do. Philomena watched him storm down the stairs. She thought she was best rid of his vexing dunghead anyway. She was not disloyal. He was the disloyal one. Why did he not help her? What did he know of loyalty? Nothing. Some man-burping horseshit. She would go to Constance at the poultry compter immediately. This jailer was the stupidest man Philomena had ever met. And dirty, too. Did he never wipe his boots? Mashed bird shit matted with feathers brought in by debtors and robbers and God knows who else was everywhere. Did the chickens of Poultry Street lodge with the inmates? Philomena gathered her skirt higher. Sir, how many gentlewomen are here that you do not know who I ask for? The jailer, using his wee power of mind, examined her coin. In exasperation, she passed another, dodging his filthy hands. She did not want to breathe the same air. There is a family at the top, he managed, with a bed, a good size. But if they have friends and an open hand, they may have a great many things. Philomena had heard of families who, when all was said and done, made their home at the prison, coming and going freely. Indeed, Philomena said. And did you bring a young gentlewoman there? The Sutters? Was he drunk? Who were these Sutters? Is it Stoner you reach for? Were they gentle people? The Sutters owe, but they paid for some good sack. A chicken pecked the floor, and then another. Taking a broom, the greasy young dolt began waving it about. More chickens appeared, as if they thought the broom a fine place to roost. "'Ya flying devils!' He swatted it directly at Philomena, who shrieked and put up her hands. The tower lumbered over, thrusting out his chest as a shield against matted bird shit, the wildly waving broom, and the balking chickens. Grimy fingers poked through an iron-barred cell, grabbing at Philomena's cloak, as the horrible fowl buffeted her back. The tower slapped the hands away and scattered the birds. "'Lady, I have conquered!' the jailer announced. He was covered with feathers. Some stuck out of his ears and nose, but he seemed curiously refreshed. You are Mistress Philomena Arundel of the inn. Philomena leapt on his sudden reason. So I am, and I search for Mistress Constance Stoner, a gentlewoman recently brought here. Where is she? Mistress Philomena, the fog returned to his gaze. You know a girl, he breathed. Yes, yes, her name is Constance Stoner. No, she is called Marianne. Marianne is here, Philomena asked, utterly confused. Where? His tiny eyes widened. No, you asked for Marianne. The jailer came closer. I ask for Marianne, who lives at the inn. She who has the untamed flaxen locks, the perfect stature, the bell-like laugh. While this fellow was poetical, this description suited no one Philomena knew. Philomena offered the obvious. My lady's maid, Marianne Smee. Oh, that she was Smee no more. The jailer sighed. 
Did he mean to bargain with her, Philomena wondered, the marriage bed of poor Marianne for the location of Constance? Who can blame you for such a wish, Philomena said, but it is beyond my jurisdiction. A man must have his say, or he is not a man. I see how you bested that fowl, and I warrant this is not the first time. I will speak well of you to Marianne. I will urge your suit, but it must be in the morning. The poor girl needs her sleep. Should we call for her now, she would be filled with fear, and that will cloud her mind against you. This reasoning satisfied the jailer, and he ambled into the tunnel with Philomena and the tower in tow. A sheriff and twelve men sprang into view. The tower drew his sword, and Philomena reeled back. Who goes there? shouted the sheriff. I do, and those who know Marianne Smee. Ass, the sheriff curled his lip at the jailer. Lady, he said to Philomena, I do not know why you come here on such a night filled with ill, but you cannot enter the compter. I have high coin. Another night you might find what you seek, but not a soul passes here when the streets have such unrest, and the rumours abound. They say Scotland marches on us. It is but a friend, a girl, not yet twenty who I would visit. The sheriff countered, It will not be this night. I am fond of my head, and many have cried the innocence of one inside. The men stood shoulder to shoulder, and on this night a bribe would not serve. Philomena thought it best to try another tack. She would go to Bedford House and beg help from the Princess Cecilia. Philomena has done her best to help Constance. She has to find someone of greater influence to help get Constance out. But Philomena, of course, doesn't know exactly what Constance is being charged with. And it could be a fine or something much, much worse. Right. The punishment would not be a long sentence. That will not be Constance's fate. Because being held in prison for months or years on end wasn't considered a punishment as it is now. It wasn't a way to serve for your crime. Prisons were holding pens until that person was either brought to trial at a court or determined to be innocent and released. So if you were found guilty at your trial, you would go directly to your punishment. Having your hand chopped off, paying a fine, or being put in the stocks, or even executed. But you wouldn't be committed to a term in prison as a punishment. So in this period, the words jail and prison are kind of interchangeable. In the beginning of this chapter, Constance does not expect to go to jail. She expects to pay a fine for attending mass. And those fines could be steep, but Rutland has given her gold to pay. When it becomes clear to her that a fine will not be sufficient, she fears her crime is much more complicated than going to mass. Lord William Cecil makes some accusations against her that sound very dangerous because any hint at treason is terrifying because the punishment for treason is always death. Constance is, of course, hoping for the best, that she'll just have to spend a little while in jail until her innocence is proved but and she is released. So- Frightening to be carted off like that. And Philomena immediately knows how bad conditions in prison can be. London prisons are notoriously dangerous and terrifying places, and there were a lot of them. But Constance, as a woman and as a gentlewoman, won't be sent to the worst of them. At this time, conditions you were held in was not determined by your crime. It was determined by your class. And I think that most people would argue that that is still the case in modern prisons. Agreed. But in this period, that's not even an idea 
idea that prison should be the same for everyone. Where you were in the great chain of being determined the conditions you were held in. There were different prisons for different types of crimes, but within those places, there were sort of upscale conditions and the worst of the worst conditions. The amazing Peter Aykroyd writes in his biography of London what the preferred prisons are. The tower, of course, is usually reserved for royal prisoners or any kind of important person. If you're royal, i.e. Anne Boleyn, Queen Consort of England, you would never be held anywhere beside the Tower of London, no matter how serious your crime. The Gatehouse Prison and Fleet Prison are for debtors. Newgate is also for debt and violent crimes. If I were a debtor, I would not want to stay there with violent criminals No. I agree. Other prisons were Ludgate and Wood Street, and they were usually for theft. And where Constance is going, the paltry compter, is also for debt. Bridewell is where prostitutes would have been sent. The White Lion, the King's Bench, Marshalsea, the Clink, they were for Catholics and recusants and priests. But Constance has not been sent to one of those, so... Hmm. Hmm. Bridewell is actually very interesting because it's the first prison where they paid you for your work. So it was a bit like you could work off your fine? I think so. Because unless you had a friend on the outside who could pay the fine for you, you could not work to make money and pay the fine and you just never got out. You just languished in there until you died. It's horrible. Working in prison was a way to pay off your debt. And these new ideas originated at Bridewell under Edward VI. But I don't know how much he really had to do with it. Well, he donated the building that would become Bridewell to the city of London. And Edward went along with the idea that humans could be reformed. So Newgate was the other extreme. It was the prison you went to when you were waiting to be executed. Newgate was so notorious that there was a legend called the Black Dog of Newgate. The story is that the night before an execution, a demon hound dog would appear in the prison and drag the poor condemned prisoner's soul to hell. As if the execution was not enough. Mm. Of course, not all executed prisoners were held in Newgate. Royalty and other special prisoners were held at the Tower. And if found guilty... Which it seems as if they always were. (laughs) You might be able to gain a relatively private execution on Tower Hill. Or in the case of Anne Boleyn, she was executed on Tower Green within the limits of the Tower Complex to avoid a crowd coming to see the execution. And that just made the whole thing much more pleasant. (laughs) Within the horror of the whole thing, I guess it made it slightly more pleasant in a way, not having the shame of a public spectacle with crowds of people you considered far beneath you, pelting you with stuff and calling you names. And there really is a difference in being executed by a master executioner with a sharp sword instead of a clumsy executioner with a dull axe. Yes, because in the first case... It's all over with one stroke. In the other, you might have to bear a number of hacks at your neck while you were still somewhat conscious. That does put it in perspective. (laughs) Thank you, gracious King Henry, for sending me a swordsman from France. (laughs) But for those too lowly to be housed at the Tower, there were still even more prisons. There was St. Catharines, East Smithfield, New Prison, Lord Wentworth's, and Finsbury. So you could always find a place to stay. (laughs) It's interesting, as you said, that there's just no idea that all prisoners should be treated with what we would consider some equality. And again, we want to acknowledge we have that idea, but not the actual practice when it comes down to it. But in the Tudor period, it was part of the deal. Every prison 
had a variety of rooms, like a hotel, a single, a double, a suite, a deluxe suite. Everything had to be paid for when you were there. Your cell, your food, everything. Right, because if you didn't have money for a cell or a room, you were just held in a big room with everybody else. There's no privacy in prison now, but there was even less. That's why Philomena goes to the prison to try to improve Constance's conditions. And that's why she sends a mattress, because she assumes that Constance has nothing since she doesn't have any money to pay for things. And you had to pay your jailers and staff. Mm. And if you couldn't, the conditions were horrible. And they put you in the hole, which was actually the name of the lowest level, where the food was donated by the sheriff, and it was cold, and there was no exercise. You couldn't move around, and you could die down there. But if you could afford to live on the upper floors and pay for everything, it actually might not be that bad. There were three types of court in Tudor England. The monarch's courts, which included the court of the exchequer, the court of the king's bench or the queen's bench, depending on who the monarch was, the court of common pleas, and the court of chancery. These were all secular courts. They dealt with taxes or what you owed the crown, legal disputes between people, inheritances, trusts, and property and marriage settlements. The star chamber and parliament dealt exclusively with treason and high-level cases of the most important national interest. In these courts, most of the cases are about property because the crown was often seizing property and they were the main source of disputes. But another common crime was smuggling because custom duties were a huge part of the crown's income, up to a third. So smuggling was an extremely serious offense. And there were religious courts or church courts And you would have to go before a religious court for adultery, living immorally, whatever that means, incest, blasphemy, sodomy, failure to observe the rights of the church, recusancy for the Catholics. That is a lot of crimes. But what they actually saw in these courts was a lot of infidelity, Sabbath breakers, and magic potion makers, which seems like it would have been an extremely hard thing to prove that you made a magic potion. It just doesn't seem worth having a court for. (laughs) But this court was convened with the notion that they would rid the world of sin. They used public shaming heavily in these cases because there was a belief that you wouldn't sin again if you were paraded before your community. And they saw public shaming as a deterrent. And then there were the local courts, which handled secular, local problems, small claims. And there was no set way that crimes were handled in these courts. These were local courts, and sometimes they used a local tradition, or if the person were a member of a guild, the guild might handle it. So it varied tremendously depending on where you were and who you were. So there was no central way that things should be done. And after you went to prison and trial and a judgment was passed on you, boom. Then there would be the fairly immediate punishment carried out, and it was usually physical. Let's hope Philomena can get to Cecilia and get Constance some help to get her out of prison. For sure. And don't forget, if you're enjoying the story, support us and buy some great Tudor Time Machine swag. Go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and you'll see all the wonderful items we have for sale. And join us next time for more Time's Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.